Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, hey, C4, good to see you here at Ajax, and those of you who are in Bowmanville this morning, and for those of you who are also in Port Perry, it's really great to have you with us, and uh, it's really great to be here. Uh, our summer teaching series this year has been called Heart and Soul. Uh, hearing the conversion stories and some of the life stories of our uh, speakers, whether they be guest speakers who've joined us or people uh, from C4. And seeing how the story of the speaker and a part of their journey uh, fits with some of the teaching of Jesus. And we've been diving into the scripture and looking at some of the teachings of Jesus and seeing how Jesus then speaks to the different life circumstances that we would find ourselves in. We've heard about uh, those people who have grown up in Christian homes where uh, the faith has been passed down through generation, through uh, grandparents and faithful parents. Uh, we've also heard how good people, how intellectuals and how skeptics have come to encounter the Savior. We've also heard from people from different uh, ethnic backgrounds and uh, people who maybe didn't grow up uh, exposed initially to Christianity, but how they have been exposed to the good news of Jesus and have met him through that. <clears throat> and then last week, we heard from someone who had uh, a criminal past and was on the run from God for most of her life and how she wonderfully met Jesus and gave her life to Christ. So this week, I get to tell you a bit about my story. And I gotta be just brutally upfront with you. As one of your pastors, um, it's a little daunting, actually, to share part of my story with you. I mean, I've been around C4 for over nine years now, and I've met a whole bunch of you, and, and you know some things about my story. But I was really gonna play it safe on an August long weekend. <laughs> When Pastor John, you know, published the preaching schedule way back in the spring, or actually long before the spring in the winter, and he said, Dave, I want you to take August 4th. I said, sure, no, no problem. And I knew what the series was, and I thought, hey, it's an August-long weekend. I'm just going to play it safe. I'm just going to kind of tell sort of a general Dave kind of story, Dave's life kind of story, and then I'll just move into some nice Bible teaching, and everyone will go home happy on a long weekend. But as I started praying... And as I started talking to other people and as I started my preparation months ago, God had completely different ideas. And so I'm going to tell you a part of my story today that only two people know already. My wife Jennifer knows this part of my story. And my best friend for hire, my therapist, also knows this part of my story. Let me give you a little bit of background, just sort of common stuff so that, so that you get the picture before I dive into what I want to share today. I grew up in what today would be called a war zone in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It was during a time that is called the Troubles. And that's what it was nicknamed. From 1960 when I was born to 1976 uh, when I left Northern Ireland to come to Canada, about 3,500 people were killed and thousands of people were injured in the area that I grew up. And most people think that it was due to Protestant Catholic, but it was really a whole political scheme. My next door neighbor was a Roman Catholic, and he was exactly the same age as me. We never went to school together because we had segregated schools. 
But Chris and I were really great friends, and we're still Facebook friends today, and I got a chance to visit him just last year, and we recall the event where because Chris and I hung out, that wasn't a very popular thing for a Protestant guy and a Catholic guy to hang out together. One day we were coming home from, I think, playing football or something like that, and a car screamed up beside us, and four guys jumped out. One guy put a gun to my head, and the other three guys beat up Chris just because there was so much hatred. My family was pretty normal <laughs> growing up. Mom and dad and two younger brothers. Things were always interesting with our family. Uh, I'm the oldest, and I think I'm a typical firstborn. How, how many good firstborns do we have here? Typical firstborns, yeah. You know, we are reliable, we're conscientious, we're the good kids in the family, right? Yeah, so I, I was that kid, for sure. I grew up in a non-Christian family, in a family where Jesus was a swear word. But on a junior high retreat, I met Jesus, and I gave my life to him. I remember really vividly, almost as if it was just yesterday, but I was 11 or 12 years old. I remember hearing the good news of Jesus for the first time and that he died for me on the cross. And on that junior high weekend retreat, on the Saturday night, I knelt down by my bedside and I asked Jesus to become my Lord and Savior, and I invited him into my life. A youth ministry picked up my story there, and they loved me, and they cared for me, and they taught me how to read the Bible and how to pray and how to follow Jesus. When I was 16, my parents announced that we were moving to Canada. I'd never been to Canada, nor had I any interest in coming to Canada. You know how understanding 16-year-old boys can be. I realized later the great personal sacrifice that my parents made to leave all of their friends and all of their family and come here alone. So that's some background so you have the context for what I want to share with you today about my early years growing up. In the, in the spring, Pastor John did this great series. It was a three-week series on, on the Trinity. And, and I remember something he, he said one of the Sundays. I think it was the very first Sunday. It really stuck with me. Pastor John said something like this. Many of you are going to struggle with one person out of the Trinity. Either you're going to have some struggles and some hang-ups with God the Father, or you're going to have some struggles and hang-ups with Jesus the Son, or you're going to have some struggles and hang-ups with the Holy Spirit. But, but most of us are going to struggle with one. And that really resonated with me because my struggle has always been with God the Father. Three years ago, I went through a very, very difficult season in my life. I was depressed. I was burned out. I was on the edge of a nervous breakdown. And one of the things that I had to face and had to work through as an adult was my relationship with my dad because of some of the things that I experienced as a child growing up. My dad's nickname to this day is RTB. I call him RTB, my brothers call him RTB, uh, my kids all call him RTB, and my grandchildren, when they start talking, will call him RTB. It stands for Ronnie the Butcher. Now, not because he's a mafia hitman, <laughs> and not because he's a former WWE all-star wrestler, but my dad, uh, at about 14 years old, became a butcher. He became a meat cutter in Ireland. He did that to help the family out, and to learn a trade rather than get a formal education. And so he's worked a long, hard life. My dad was a bit of a legend where we grew up in Northern Ireland. 
Very early on in his life, to channel some of his aggression as a young man, he got into boxing, and he was really, really good. In his late teens, he won almost all of his fights. He was a county champion, and he competed on a national level. And and many of my uncles have told me the story that my dad could have fought in the Olympics representing Great Britain, except my mom, because he just met her and started dating her, made him make a choice between her and boxing, and he chose her. (laughs) So as a kid growing up, this is what I heard all the time, hit first, ask questions later. How do you solve disputes in a family? You hit first, you ask questions later. What happens if something happens out on the soccer field and you get into a bit of a a dispute? You hit first and you ask questions later. I remember remember as a a teenage boy, you know how teenage boys get when there's there's so many hormones pulsing through our bodies that we begin to kind of like test our manhood. And I remember always like trying to test my manhood with my dad. But he would always bring me back to earth with his lightning quick and unbelievably powerful punches. My dad was a very funny person. He was the life of the party, quick-witted. Parties and drinking were a regular part of my dad's life, and almost every weekend would end up the same way. My mom and dad would come home and done way too much partying, way too much drinking. It's the chief reason today why I am a total abstainer. It's not because I have a problem with alcohol and and Christian social drinking. I don't think that's really an issue issue biblically. Because it was so abused and I was exposed to so much as a child that I've reacted the other way. My dad was a tough disciplinarian. My grandfather on my mom's side, my grandfather and my dad used to have this argument. I don't remember it, but I've been told this. My, My grandfather was you know, kind of kind-hearted and soft, and my dad just wasn't. And he used to think that my, my dad was too hard on us kids. He was too much of a disciplinarian. And so they had this running battle between the two of them all the time. Now, as a grandfather, I totally side with my grandfather, you know, now. And everything changed one day when we were playing soccer out on on the field and the ball was kicked out onto the street and I went running after the ball. My dad saw me running after the ball and he saw the car coming down the street and he just yelled, David, stop! And I froze because (laughs) I always froze when my dad yelled. This time it saved my life. But it shows you the depth to which Instant obedience was what was expected in my family. When I was having trouble learning to swim as just a young guy, my dad would coax me on to an air mattress when we would go to the beach and to the Irish Sea. Why we ever went into the Irish Sea, I don't know. But my dad would coax me on to an air mattress, and he would take me out into deep water, and he would dump me off the air mattress, even though I would plead with him and beg with him not to do it. It was his way of teaching me. My dad was careless with his words. I remember as a child having troubles reading. Math came so easy to me, but reading really didn't. My dad would stand over me and help me sound out my words. And every homework session ended the same way. 
My dad would get frustrated and angry, and I would sit terrified of making a mistake and waiting for the inevitable hammer to fall as my dad's frustration boiled over into anger. I was constantly called stupid, and I believed it for most of my life, even into my adult years. Even after being the first person in our entire family to graduate from university with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, I struggled with feelings of stupidity. So then, as an adult who found himself in crisis, I realized that I had some significant problems with God as my heavenly father because I had significant problems with my dad. Now, I want you to hear this so clearly. My dad is 84. He just, uh, he just turned 84. And I am confident that my dad loves me. I think I understand now as an adult the pressures that he was under and how ill-equipped he was as a parent. My dad didn't know Jesus in those days, and he didn't have a soft, teachable heart. There was a seminary in the U.S. that did a study. The incoming class were given a questionnaire, and as they prepared to study theology for three years, the administration had them go through this questionnaire. And embedded in the questionnaire were a whole bunch of questions about their relationship with their dads. They asked them how they felt about their dad, about their interactions with their dad, all these different questions focused on their dad. And then these students, this incoming class, for three full years studied theology, which is the study of God. That's what theology means, the study of God. And then after studying God for three whole years, as they exited and graduated, they gave them the exact same questionnaire, except this time they changed all of the references and all of the questions uh, of dad to God the Father. And you know there was no statistical difference in the two surveys. They answered the questions exactly the same way. See, our relationship with God the Father is heavily biased based on our relationship with our dads, good or bad. So for me, the issues I had were fear. I was terrified of God the Father. I figured if I just, if I messed up, if somehow I blew it in a small way or in a big way, that inevitably God was standing over me and the hammer would just fall on me. I had trust issues. You know, I knew that God loved me, and, and yet somehow I just couldn't fully trust him because somehow I figured in the end he'll just dump me off the air mattress. And I struggled with lies about myself. Like, if the Bible is God's words to me, could I trust those words? As I was seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit and I sensed and heard the whispers of the Spirit, could I trust that those were true words about me and to me? Did I really, did I really deserve God's amazing grace? Was I just too stupid for God to even care? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three great stories. Jesus, the master storyteller. In Luke 15, the three stories are this. One is about a lost sheep. One is about a lost coin. And we would say one is about a, a lost son, although I want to dispel that this morning. I don't think that the story of the prodigal son is really about the prodigal son at all. I think it's about a really great father. <laughs> 
but you can judge for yourself, but that's what the stories are about. And they all have some, something in common. In, in all three stories, something of great value is lost. In all three stories, an all-out effort is needed to find what was lost. And in all three stories, there's a great celebration that happens when the lost thing has been found. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus on the third parable, the one that we commonly call the prodigal son. Now, here's what you have to remember about, pro, uh, about parables and Jesus' use of parables. Jesus is employing a technique that is common to rabbis of his day in telling stories like this. And everybody knows the ground rules, although we typically don't because we are Westerners. We're not Easterners, and we don't live in Jesus' day. So here's what you need to remember. There's two things you have to remember as we walk through this parable together. The first one is you are supposed to find yourself in the story. You have to find yourself in the story. You were forced and compelled to do that as Jesus tells the story. The second thing that you have to remember is Jesus, as the master storyteller, always has a twist or something like that is just shocking that happens in his stories. He is known for it, and it's what makes him one of the, the greatest parable tellers of all time. So let's look at, at Luke chapter 15, 11 to 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now this is a great start to Jesus' parable. We don't quite get the punch because we are so far removed culturally. The son is essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because <laughs> that's the only way the son gets the property from the father. So he says, hey, Dad, I don't really, I'm not really that interested in a relationship between you and me. Really what I would love is your stuff. So if you could just give me your stuff right now, you're as good as dead to me. I want your stuff. I don't really care about you. And as soon as Jesus utters these words, his Middle Eastern uh, audience would, would have, you know, already judged this younger, disrespectful brat of a son for even uttering these kinds of words. But it gets worse in verses 13 and 14. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So the younger son leaves the family home. Huge insult. Huge insult to the entire family. He's got his money. He's got what he wants. He really doesn't care about anybody else in the household. And so he leaves. And the reference to the distant country has religious significance. See, for the Jews, being in Israel was tied to economics and politics, yes, but it was also tied to faith. To leave your country would be seen as walking away from your faith. So this guy is not only leaving his relationships and saying, Father, I don't even care about you and I don't care about the rest of the family, but I don't even care about this God that you worship because I'm going to a foreign country. And so when he's in this foreign country, he squanders his wealth in what Jesus says is wild living. Now the term that Jesus uses here has no sexual overtones to it. And that becomes important in the story a little bit later on. The term that Jesus uses here, in today's terms, we would say the kid moved to a foreign country and he was just living high off the hog. He, he was just kind of living the lifestyle of the rich and famous. You know, he's just, he was just living this lavish, lavish lifestyle. But soon the money is gone. That's problem number one. 
But then there was an additional problem that plunged him into the depths of despair and poverty, a famine. See, now stuck in a foreign country, completely out of resources, out of money, and with no family and no support system around him, this guy now becomes a welfare case. Verses 15 and 16. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now again, loses its punch for us, but Jesus' listeners are going, oh man, he said pigs. Oh, dang it. See, Jesus is really driving home a point here. As a Jew, this younger son has hit rock bottom. He is now religiously and ceremonially unclean to other Jews because he has lowered himself to looking after pigs. And, and not even his own pigs, if that was even allowable, but the pigs of someone else in a foreign country. Verses 17 to 19, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, at first reading, there's a tendency to think, okay, the kid has hit rock bottom and he's repenting. He has found God in the pigsty. It's not, I don't think that's what's happening at all here. He's come up with an idea. He's come up with a scheme that'll get him out of trouble. He knows that he's blown it, so what he decides to do is go back to his father and ask for a job. See, what he's doing is he still doesn't want relationship with the dad. If I found myself in this situation, I'd go back and I'd say, hey, dad, I know I blew it, but, but I'm still your son. Like, would you have mercy on me, and would you just let me be your kid again, even though I've cost you so much? But that's not what he does. He says, I'll go back, and I will play on that fact, but I will use that to become a hired servant. See, this is a works-based solution that he's proposing. This is a scheme to use the old man and use the inside scoop that he has with the old man to get a job so that he can get some money again. So verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. This is the first big shock moment in Jesus' parable. Like, when Jesus utters these words, every jaw drops and people are like nudging each other and they're punching and you're like, can you believe what he just said? And we sit there and go, oh, it's really nice. How touching of a moment. No, no. This is shock. This is unbelievable. This is a shock bomb of epic proportions that Jesus has just dropped in this story. While he was still a long way off. So the prominent homes and the prominent families would have lived in the middle of the town or the middle of the village because they would have been established and the village or the town would grow up around the prominent families. 
And so here you have this father in the middle of this town, in the middle of this village, and he is watching. He is looking out of the road. He is looking beyond his own homestead. He's looking beyond the town, beyond the village, beyond the gates, out into the countryside, out into the road, and he sees something that looks really familiar to him. He recognizes that walk. He recognizes that outline. He recognizes that shape. And Jesus' listeners would be blown away. This father who has been publicly insulted by this son, this son who has taken the father's wealth, who has wished that the father was dead, this brat of a kid who has publicly humiliated this guy, and this father is looking for him and longing for him and waiting for him and watching for him. But then Jesus says, but he sees him And he runs to him. Oh, are you kidding me? Middle Eastern men don't run. It's undignified for a Middle Eastern man to run. In order to run, a Middle Eastern man has to pull up his outer garment and show his legs, something that Middle Eastern men never do. And so they're shocked that this dignified father figure in this story, this man of means, this man who is worthy of respect, who has been shamed and humiliated by this son, that he picks up his outer garment and he runs to this brat. And from his house to get to where his kid is, he has to run through the whole town, through the whole village, past all of the elders, past the the town gates or the city gates where all of the nobles and all of the officials meet, and he has to run past all of them completely undignified to get to his son. See, the father takes the humiliation of the village upon himself so that he can get to the son before the son reaches the village because of that brat who went out of here so full of himself and so full of his father's wealth with all of that bravado coming back now in shame, the village will let him have it when he comes back. And the father wants to spare the son that treatment. And so he humiliates himself so that the son doesn't have to go through it. He protects the son from the community. And he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. And the literal reading is, he hangs off his neck, and he kisses him. And Jesus is using a tactic here that we just, we just don't get unless you're a, an unbelievable Bible scholar. Jesus is pointing to Genesis 33 and Genesis 45, where there are only two other stories where people run and hang off someone's neck and kiss them. The first one is Jacob and Esau. Jacob cheats Esau out of his birthright and out of his inheritance, and he tricks him, and he tricks his dad, and he steals from his brother, and they've been separated for years, and then suddenly they come together, and he thinks, Esau is going to kill me because I stole from him. And Esau instead runs to him and throws his arms around him, hangs off his neck, and kisses him. It's a great picture of reconciliation and forgiveness. The other story is in Genesis 45, where you have Joseph in Egypt. 
And after that whole wonderful story of Joseph in Egypt, what we see is Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And in the revealing of himself, he comes down because he's now second in command of all Egypt. And they've come down to beg for food because of the poverty. And he finally, through some circumstances, brings the whole family together. Then he reveals himself to them and he goes down and he hangs off their necks and he kisses them. Again, it's a great Great story of reconciliation of people not getting what they really deserve. And that's what Jesus does here. Very intentionally, he uses these words. And then we move to verses 21 to 24. So the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is his speech. But the father said to his servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. What does the son do in the face of this extravagant love from the father? How does he treat the amazing grace offered to him by the dad? He drops the scheme. Now, there is some dispute here uh, among good Christian theologians. Some people believe that he doesn't get to the make me a hired man because the father interrupts him because he just wants the relationship. And others, and I would tend to fall into this camp, say that he starts out with this story, but he's responding now appropriately. This is his moment of repentance. He sees what the father has done for him. He sees this humiliation that the father has put himself through, that he has run through the streets and come out to meet him. And in response to that, he says, I have sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. So his father moves into celebration mode because the son has accepted the father's great offer of grace and forgiveness. Now you can't miss this. The celebration is not just because the boy has come home, but the big part of the celebration is because of this, because the father's costly display of grace has been accepted by the son. That's the reason for the celebration. That's why it has to be all-out celebration. The father has offered grace, and the son has responded appropriately and received the grace, and the father's heart just goes wild now because the son has uh, done this. In verse 24, it says this, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Jesus uses a very common um, literary device here. It's called the divine passive. And again, we just, it's not part of our common language. We wouldn't get it. But definitely those listening to Jesus in his day would have fully understand what Jesus is really saying here. They would have heard it more like this. They would have heard it this way. This son of mine was dead, but I made him alive. This son of mine was lost, but I found him. See, it's all initiated by the Father. Everything is by the Father. So now Jesus turns to the other brother in the parable because the story's not done yet. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house and heard the music and the dancing, so he called one of the servants and he asked him, well, what's going on? Will your brothers come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is him back safe and sound. The older brother has been out in the field working. Don't, don't miss that. He's been working for his dad. He's been working this whole time. He has been trying to earn the favor of his dad. 
And he arrives home and there's this great party going on and he finds out by asking a servant or a young child in the courtyard. Now this is where Jesus drops shock bomb number two into the story. The older son does not go in to the banquet. Boom! You're like, well, I wouldn't go in too. I'd be ticked. No, 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 no. Don't think like a Western spoiled brat. Think like a Middle Easterner. To not go in to the banquet is an enormous public insult to the father. You see, everybody's inside at the banquet. All of the family are gathered there. All of the neighbors are gathered there. All of the local officials, the town elders, everyone who's anyone is in the banquet. And by not going in, the brother is insulting his father the same way that the younger son insulted his father by asking for his wealth early and leaving town. It's exactly the same level of insult. Now, why is he so angry? Why is this older brother so mad? What has made him publicly dishonor his father like this? Well, it's the banquet, right? Of course, it's a banquet. But it's, he's not angry that his brothers come home. What he's angry about is that he doesn't think his brother deserves this kind of treatment by the dad. He is mad that grace has been extended to this brat of a brother of his who has squandered everything. And here he is working his tail off all these years. And the father treats the son not like he deserves and gives him grace. And that ticks him off royally. Now, culturally, the father should have just said, leave him out there. In fact, servants, go. Go deal with that guy. Go lay a beating on that kid. Go lock him in his room, and I'll deal with him later. You know that tone when dad would say, I'll deal with you later? That tone. That's culturally what the father should have done. But that's not what happens. He goes out to him. What? He goes out to him. You imagine this party is going on. There's a dancing and there's music and people are eating the fatted calf. By the way, I've never had fatted calf, have you? Anyways, it sounds good. Sounds good, right? Just fatted calf. Notice there's no vegetables mentioned. Anyways, that's a whole other other thing. But the fatted calf is being devoured, likely because it was eating the food of the vegetarians. But anyways, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The fatted calf is being enjoyed, and they're enjoying the fatted calf, and they're doing that. And then the father gets up because the son, older son won't come in, and he goes out, and everything goes to a hush. People are like tweeting, can you believe it? Hashtag amazing. Oh, this is an Instagram moment. Oh, this will go viral. The dad's going out. Hashtag unbelievable. You know, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. He goes out. Are you kidding me? He goes out. He should never go out. Once again, Jesus shows a father taking the insults and the humiliation of the children and bearing it himself, responding with grace and mercy and not anger and not wrath. Once again, mercy triumphs over justice. So the father goes out and he pleads with the son to come in. Unbelievable. He's pleading with him. Now look at the son's response, the older son, verse 29 30. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Until now, by the way, because he won't come into the banquet. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not his brother, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? 
The son, this older son, insults his father over and over again. He says, look. He doesn't even address him by title, by the title that the father deserves. He just says, look, hey, you, look. He says, I've been slaving. <laughs> He's got the same problem. He doesn't realize it's about relationship. It's not about what you do. I've been slaving for you. The father would say, you know, if, if it was a quick comeback, who asked you to slave? I never asked you to slave. You're my son. Everything I have is yours. You don't have to slave and earn it. It's all yours by virtue of relationship. But you think it's about what you do? And he's so angry in verse 30 that he exaggerates. He says, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours has squandered your wealth with prostitutes. That's his exaggeration. It wasn't in the original when Jesus said that he went off and he lived this luxurious lifestyle. There was no mention of prostitutes. Now the prostitutes are added in. Why? The son is out of control angry. And he's angry because of the grace that the father has shown. Well, look how the father responds as Jesus winds up the story. My son, or my child, <laughs> my child is a good translation. The father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. You don't have to earn it. It's yours by default, just because you're my son. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead, and I found him. Again, Jesus is using the divine passive, and I found him. He was uh, he was lost, and I have found him. He was dead, and I have made him alive. See, the father should have slapped his face, locked him up, or kicked him out of the family, but he doesn't. He extends the same grace to this brother that he extended to his younger brother. So what is Jesus driving at in this parable? Well, to the original hearers, we have to go there first. I left out Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, intentionally, because we had to come back to it at the end. It says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And it's out of that that Jesus tells this story. So the younger son is the tax collectors and the sinners. Those who know they've blown it. Those who are undeserving. Those who are living their own lifestyle. Those who have gone and lived the wild life and who are just living totally for themselves. Who've turned their back on religion. Who've turned their back on their parents. Who, who, are, who are immoral. Who are disrespectful. And Jesus says, they're the, the younger son in the story. But you, religious elite, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you who think you're good enough, Though you who can't believe that I have come to save even those that you look down on, those that you would never associate with, I've also come because you're the older brother and you need my grace and my mercy just as much as the younger brother. You're so self-righteous. So who am I in this story? Who are you in this story? Do you more identify with the younger son? Are you the atheist, the skeptic, the one who is far from God, the one who is living totally for yourself, the one who has turned your back on your heritage and your upbringing, who is disrespectful to your parents, who's just out to get whatever you can get out of this world? Is that you? Do you identify? Or do you identify better with the older son? Are you religious? 
Are you jealous that the church is even reaching out and making so much effort to reach out to these brats who have turned their back on everything? Are you depending on a works-based solution? Are you trying to prove that you're actually good enough to God? I don't know who you identify with, but here's what I really need you to hear today in this message. I don't know which one of those two you are, but I know who the Father is in the story. And it's indisputable who the Father is in the story. The Father in the story is God, our Heavenly Father. Make no mistake about it. It is the love of the Father that sent Jesus to the cross. He took on my humiliation. He took on your humiliation. He bore our sin. He took the righteous anger and the wrath and the judgment of God the Father, and he bore it on himself. And God did all of this to demonstrate his great love and affection for you and me. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 is one of my favorite verses. Oh, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. So in my story, I had to come to an acknowledgement that I had superimposed things on God the Father that were not attributes of God the Father. And I had to repent of that. I had to change my way of thinking about God the Father. And, and I've worked on my relationship, and I have a really great relationship now with my 84-year-old dad, who, by the way, met Jesus late in his life, and everything's changed. And I continue to work on my relationship with God the Father, understanding him better that he is not angry with me and he is not angry with you and I don't have to look over my shoulder and I don't have to constantly duck waiting for the hammer to drop because it's not going to drop because he dropped the hammer on Jesus for my sake and for your sake. And all of his righteous anger and all of his righteous wrath was poured out on Jesus and Jesus bore it all for me and all for you. He's so good to us. So coming out of this sermon today, there's three things that I want to encourage you. The first one is this, repent. It's not a negative term, friends. Repent means that you're going this way and you decide, this is not the right way to go. I shouldn't be looking at God the Father this way. I, there's God the Father. I go this way. That's what repentance is all about. Repent. Change your mind. The second thing is you need to focus on truth. What is true about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to go back and listen to that three-part series that Pastor John preached. And the third thing is this, get help. Get help. It took me months and months and months of intense therapy to work this stuff through, and it was worth it. It was totally worth it. And so I encourage you, my friends, if you need help, get help. Let's pray together. So God, thank you for your grace and your goodness and your kindness towards us. May you continue to heal the father wound that so many of us have. People have stories that are similar to mine and different. Maybe it's a father who was never there. Uh, maybe it was horrific 
sexual abuse. I, I just don't know, Lord, but I know that so many people, so many of us have struggles with you because we struggled with our dads. Oh, God, would we see you more clearly? Would we see you rightly so that we uh, can worship you better and we can get to know you better and we can serve you better? And we would ask all of this in and through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.